Who is the minister of the community church? If someone walked in today as a, as a newcomer, who's the minister here? What would you say? All right. Okay. So there's two answers. Someone said Dave, <laughs> and someone said Marion. Sorry. What? All of us. Someone said all of us. Oh my goodness, you're on the money. Because one of my um, uh, personal maxims is, what's the Christian life? What's the normal Christian life? And it's to, to my mind, it's everyone a minister, everyone a witness. Everyone care for the poor. It feels to me those, those kind of three strands are uh, part of what it means to be called to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But the, the reality is that if um, someone said to you today, oh, are you a minister at uh, uh, the community church? You may say, oh, no, not me. It's so-and-so. Who, who would do that? If, you know, if, if the stranger walks, are you the minister? And you point to someone else. And And of course... You'd be right in one way because probably they're asking the question, who's, who's like, who's in charge? Who's the, the leader? But if you were really saying, actually, if they were saying, oh, I could do with some prayer today, and you pointed to someone else, it might be because you just felt less qualified than other people. You might even carry some imposter syndrome in thinking, can I be a minister? Has anyone ever felt Christian imposter syndrome? I think we all do, don't we? And, and one reason we, we feel imposter syndrome is because we, because of us. We look at ourselves and we, we, we may feel either ashamed, uh, if you really knew me, you wouldn't, or we may feel, um, unqualified, untrained, unprepared. And it may be that we also, disqualify ourselves because of the comparison trap. We think someone else would do this better than I would. And so both those, both those things are just really common in life, aren't they, in, in Christian life. I, either there's something wrong with me, I'm just not appropriate, or actually I could do it, but there's someone who would do it better than me who's over there, and I'll go and find them <laughs> for you in a minute. Now, when I, in the 1980s, when I was... But a lad, a young man, um, uh, I was very strongly influenced by the ministry of John Wimber and Chaz and Barbara sitting on the front row will be able to describe to you the time in their church at St. Andrew's Chorleywood when John Wimber showed up with his team from America and it changed everything, you know? But over the 20th century, the church in the UK had had a string of visitors from America who would come with evangelistic or healing ministries and very often there'd be a you know a kind of the great man usually a man sometimes a woman at the front and they would be the anointed person of God and um, deliver their message and then there'd be a healing line as or whatever it was people would come up and get ministry from that person and one of the things that was different about John Wimber when when he came to the UK and and taught us about the work of the Holy Spirit and about healing signs and wonders was Rather than going to John to get the prayer, it was everybody gets to pray. And one of the, um, the, the phrase, everyone gets to play, which is my title for today, is a, is a Wimberism. It's a phrase he coined to describe really what the normal Christian life was. Everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to do the stuff. Everybody is a minister. And that was a change. And, and the, the, the vineyard movement that John started and John himself produced a magazine regularly called Equipping the Saints. And that phrase comes from the New Testament, it comes from Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul, writing to the church, talks about the kind of 
church leadership structures for people. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. And it says that their job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry till we all reach maturity. And that sense that actually everyone gets to play, we're all recruited. Now, I think that that is a profoundly New Testament idea. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a little bit about the book of Acts and Acts chapter 2. And, um, you know, when we, when we read the Bible, we can read it with a lens of, here's the kind of the great men and women of God, the superstars that God has used. And we look at the Old Testament, we think of King David, or we think of Samson, or the prophet Elijah, and we think superstars. If we look a little bit more deeply, what we will see amongst those, those lives that are recorded is that they are ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God. And what, what makes them special isn't who they are, but who God is as he uses them. And very often, God seems to delight to use the kind of the, the last in the queue, the David out with the sheep, or the Gideon who feels, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of hiding because I'm afraid, or, or whatever. Pe- people who are ordinary people, but used by an extraordinary God. And, and the difference with the New Testament is that what once was God using the few, God anointing the few, the Holy Spirit resting on the few, is now in this new age of the kingdom going to be the prerogative of everybody. And the, the, the language that, that becomes incredibly inclusive and when I look at that. So, if you do have a Bible, I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 2 and I'm going to give you selected highlights from that chapter because it's quite a long chapter. But look look out for the inclusive language. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So that all of them, who were the all of them? You can shout out and tell me. Well, it wasn't just the disciples. It was actually the whole community that had been left after Jesus had uh, risen and ascended to be the Father. So about 120 of them, actually. And so, of course, that the 11 were there, and, and Matthias, who replaced Judas, and all kinds of other people who were nameless. We don't know. We know that some, we know the names of some of the women who were there, but a bunch of men and women all together in one place, and they all have the same phenomena. Um, it's the Holy Spirit touching and resting on each one of them. So we carry on in the chapter, and it says, um, talks about this kind of what's going on in Jerusalem at the time. People gathered from all over the world, all over the Mediterranean basin, all over the known world, the Roman world, coming to worship the, the diaspora of, of, of Judaism. And um, it says about them, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Great question, what does it mean? What does it mean that... The praise of God is being heard in languages from around the world. Is this a, 
a great reversal of Babylon where people are separated and divided. There's something going on here about people coming together. And then Peter stands up and speaks. And and he quotes from the prophet Joel. And this is what he says. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And it says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then uh, uh, towards the end of his sermon, um, uh, it says that all the people were cut to the heart and said to Peter, And the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. Again, just put a major on the inclusive language there. First of all, the prophecy from from Joel that um, Peter quotes is comprehensive. It's old and young. It's men and women. It's men servants and maid servants. It's not socioeconomically divided. It's not age divided. It's it's a kind of all people thing. All the peoples. I don't know whether that that Joel had in mind the nations or just the whole people of Israel. But there was this is this is for everyone. And then when Peter gives that final appeal at the end, it's for you, but also for your children and your children's children, it's not just for one generation, and it's not just local, it's for all those, all who are far off, all those who the Lord will call. So that includes all of us, because we are not first generation Jews living in Jerusalem. We are multiple generations on, far off, but the same birthright, same destiny belongs to us, that we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? And what's the gift of the Holy Spirit for? Well, we could, we'll talk about that in a moment. But for, for the early church, the idea was really, really clear. This that we've received isn't just for the few, it's for the many. And that is the, the new age of the Spirit. It's the, the kind of anointing, if you like, the the power of God. That's what, what we sometimes use the word anointing to where we describe the power of God resting on people. And Christ means anointed one. So Jesus is ultimately the, the anointed one, the Christ, the one on whom the power of God rests without limit, as John records it in his, um, in the Gospels. But, but for us, we're Christians. That means we're also anointed ones, little anointed ones. And that's our birthright, our inheritance. Now, for the early church, if this, if people aren't getting hold of that birthright, they think there's something wrong. So if, if you track through the New Testament, Acts chapter 8, Philip goes to preach in Samaria. This is outside of um, Judea. This is a neighboring state. This is um, a different people group. He goes and preaches, performs signs and wonders. People believe and are baptized, but they haven't had this full-on experience. And so Philip reckons there's something wrong. You haven't got it all yet that's been promised to you. And so they send to Jerusalem, and Peter and John come down and lay hands on those new believers in Samaria. They all receive the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful thing. It's dramatic. It's visible. It's evidential. But later on, 
Peter um, finds himself in the house of Cornelius, who's a, um, a Roman centurion. He's not a Jew. He's a God-fearer, but he's had this encounter, this vision from God. He's sent for Peter. And as Peter preaches there, Cornelius and his whole household start to speak in tongues. and get, They have their own Pentecost experience. So Paul, uh, Peter has to get them baptized pretty quick because, you know, that's, that's the deal. They're, they're, God's included them. Paul, when he goes to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, finds a community of people. They've been taught by Apollos, who taught them about Jesus. But um, Paul says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I said, we we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so um, Paul explains more adequately to them. He teaches them, lays hands on them. They'll start speaking in tongues too. They, they, They have that experience because for the New Testament church, this gift of the Spirit is for everyone. But it's the gift of the Spirit is in order that we might be witnesses to King Jesus and might be ambassadors of his kingdom. That's why Jesus said, I'll pour out my Spirit. You'll be baptized with the Spirit and you will be my witnesses and you will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that taking the gospel, taking the good news is not just with words but with actions. It's demonstrating good news as well as preaching about it. It's forming communities where the poor are cared for. It's about bringing healing and deliverance to people. It's about speaking God's word prophetically into people's lives and seeing them transformed. And all of that is in the purview of what it means for each of us to be a minister. And it's quite clear as you you go on and and you look at the, the letters to the New Testament churches that everyone gets to play. That's the point. The favorite language for Paul about the church is the body, isn't it? The body of Christ. That's who you are. And he's at pains to spell out the different things that make up a body, that we're not all the same, but we're all necessary and useful. We've all got something to give. And if we look at, say, 1 Corinthians, which is, um, it describes in, in some depth the church at worship. And, and again, the, the inclusive language. That each one. So, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, when, what should we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or the most three should speak one time, and someone must interpret. It's that, that each one, again, it's the expectation is when you get together, you all get to play. Now, there are, there, are, there are challenges around size dynamics and people getting to play, aren't there? Now, if you go and watch a football match... By the way, has anyone seen the Beckham um, uh, documentary on Netflix? What do you think? Oh, I thought it was brilliant. I, I just found it fantastic. And I'm an Arsenal supporter. But on, honestly, um, but to, to football, you know, my sons love football. And um, we really enjoy watching a game of football. But what they want to do after they've watched a game of football is to go and play out in the garden and start kicking ball around because there's something about um, what we see that's inspiring that should help us. And um, it would be sad if we felt diminished. We felt, oh, I can't play football because I'll never be as good as David Beckham. It's like, you know, for me, I love playing musical instruments. I've been working really hard on my accordion playing now, which is a thing of great joy to my household. Um, <laughs> but every now and then, I'll encounter somebody, and they are just a phenomenal musician. I, I, you know, at my son Joey's wedding, um, 
There's this 16-year-old, Gabby's sort of a half-brother. My, my daughter-in-law's half-brother was there, and he's 16 years old. And, and I'd heard about him, and he said, oh, um, they said he's pretty good yeah, on the music. I said, would you like to be a professional musician one day? He said, I am a professional musician. <laughs> and at one point, he got his fiddle out and started playing some fiddle tunes, and it was awesome. Uh, and I kind of thought, oh, why do I bother trying to play as this 16-year-old kid? <laughs> but that would be sad, wouldn't it? Because actually... Um, I really enjoy playing, so it's good for me. But actually, I am quite useful from time to time uh, on, on, on music. You know, I, I actually play at our 8 o'clock service most times, and I've got some great Christmas carols under my belt on that accordion. That's going to go out on the streets, and we're going to be advertising our Christmas services. Anyway, so let's not be diminished because of the comparison trap. You know, you can look at somebody who has an incredibly fluent ministry as a Christian, they may be a brilliant preacher. They may be a fantastic evangelist. They may seem to be really on the ball with prophetic words. They, they may have a, a capacity for people pastorally that you, you're amazed at. You think, oh, well, why should I bother them? Because they're so good at it. But the reality is that what we bring is what we bring. And we should not be diminished by what other people... We could be inspired by it. We think, actually, I can up my game a little bit. I can learn from that person. But the point is, isn't it, from what I said at Ephesians 4, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's no good, oh, let's get the evangelist in, because they're really good at it, if we're not being equipped to be witnesses wherever we are. You know, uh, so part of your calling today, part of why you're here today is because God has called and recruited you to be a minister. And that's, that's really, really the heart of, of, um, of things. And, and I honestly think that when we minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, it may be a bit scary and daunting at times, but actually we get blessed by doing it. <laughs> We, we, you know, I find for myself, for instance, if I pray for someone and, and, and God actually touches their life, I'm as, uh, at least as blessed as they are. You know? Um, whatever. It, and I think that, 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 that goes for, for most ministry. Of course, sometimes ministry, serving God, being used can be draining and exhausting. Of course it can be. And the disciples had that experience. From time to time, they were drained and exhausted. And Jesus understood that. He said, let's, let's go away to a quiet place where you can get some food, get some rest. Of course, 5,000 people show up and ministry happens. And they feel, well, what have we got to give God? All we've got to give to these people who need feeding right now is five loaves and two fishes that we've nicked off this small boy. But when we give what we give to God, first of all, he multiplies it. And second of all, it's when we're stretched and when we can't do it, that's when kingdom stuff really kicks in. Because it's got to be God if, if anything happens, as it was then. So, I guess I, I want to just leave you with a couple of questions, really. Everyone gets to play. Is that really true? Do you, do you have a a dream yourself of, of how you would like to serve God, how would you like to make your life useful for God? If you do have a dream, my suspicion is that's not just a dream but a calling. Now it might be, you know, you might have delusions of grandeur and you might think, you know, I'm, 
you know, and, and that, that does happen to us. But but there's some just kind of little solid dreams that God gives us. I had a dream as a, as a younger person about living in community, about having a, uh, a community context where all sorts of good stuff would happen, where you know, it would be creative people living together. And for the last 28 years, I've had the privilege of living that dream, living in community, living with all kinds of people, um, and, and living around a, a Christian rhythm of life, and seeing God do some absolutely extraordinary things. And, and I think it was, it was a dream that either it pleased God, or God put it there in the first place, a dream that turned into a calling. And um, I wonder whether whether you have a dream that God could turn to calling, and the scale of it, you know, it's it may be just appropriate for where you are right now in your stage of life. But I reckon, if it's true, as P- as Peter quoted in Joel, old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions. Then there's a dream for for each of us to to get hold of. How how do you want to use me, God, in your service? And um, I suppose the other thing as well, just to say, is how how can you be equipped as a minister? If it's true that, okay, we're all recruited, but we need equipping, how is that equipping going to happen? Now, part of what we're called to be as a church is to be equippers. And my feeling is, that we've got to be get into small groups for some of that equipping to happen. Now, w- one thing we believe about our kind of church and about the Woodlands Church family and about the community church is that small groups are really important. How many people are regularly part of a small group here? Okay, I reckon that's about half of you, <laughs> which is you know, which is great, you know. But honestly, the things I read from Corinthians. When you get together, each one of you has got something verbal to share. Well, we can't all do that, or at least it's not in the, we could do it at the end, and we could do that maybe praying around communion. But one of my other little mantras is big churches for inspiration, small churches for participation. And churches in the home, house groups are places for participation, where we can, we, we can learn to hear from God together and kind of help one another grow in that. That's not to say that you know, they're just holy huddles and that's where it stays. It's, it's there so that we can, I guess, get a fluency from listening to God, a trust in where, where the difference between our imagination and the voice of God that helps us wherever we are just to be ambassadors for the kingdom. But actually, one way we're going to get equipped is being part of small church, particularly if we get to lead those things, which none of you really want to do because you're on duty every fortnight whenever they happen, you know? Um, but, uh, Honestly, saying yes and stepping out, that's going to help you grow. I guess the, the other thing that we, we might want to ask ourselves is, Lord God, do we need more, more of your power in my life? Um, we've, we've read some stories about people having a Pentecost, but do I need a second Pentecost? I, uh, I, I, I like the hymn that William Booth wrote, um, um, Oh God of Burning Cleansing Flame. Does anyone know that hymn? He says, um, Look down upon this waiting house. Re- release the promised Holy Ghost. We need a second Pentecost. Send the fire today. You know, and I think from time to time as church, we do need to say, God, we need more power. We need more power. It's not that, um, our encounters with God are one-off that's meant to do us for the rest of our lives. You know, I, I had an encounter with Jesus when I was 18 and, and I'm still trading off that. 
Today, we need more power, more of the power of the Holy Spirit. And part of what we do when we get prayers of blessing at communion, actually, I think we're called to pray for one another and to have something of that spiritual hunger that says, God, I believe the world's a mess and it needs you and it needs your people. I believe that um, the world's a mess and I've got a responsibility to be your servant. I believe the world's a mess and unless you do it, I can't do it. Unless you build the house, I labor in vain. Unless you give us the gifts of your spirit, then what I can do is, is a bit limited. But also a trust that the same Jesus who poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost on that first church, where the language was where everyone gets a play, is as relevant now as it ever has been. And so my, my prayer for, for us is that God stirs up a passion for him. Some of you were at our vision evening for the Woodland Church family. Um, some of you, um, if you weren't there, it's online. Do, do watch it. Um, try and get hold of, of what it means for us together to play our part because we want to see Bristol transformed. But honestly, if it takes a village to raise a child, does it say that? Is that the, the saying? I mean, it takes a whole bunch of Christians to transform a city. And that's what we're about. And we're all needed in your neighborhood, in your place of work, in your friendship circle, in in the place where you do your hobbies, where you play your sport or whatever it is, in the public gatherings where we invite people, but also in the places where God sends us. We all get to be ambassadors for King Jesus. We all get to play. We all get to do the stuff because he has chosen you You've got things that only you can bring, and you're special. Let me pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much that you've called us at this time in the history of Bristol and in the history of planet Earth to be people who know you, who love you, and are called to serve you. Father, I want to pray that in this room today there would be a stirring of your Holy Spirit, um, a saying yes to whatever you might be calling us to at this time, of a recognition, God, that that you know us and that you're not ashamed of us. And Lord, where we've disqualified ourselves because of shame, where there's a, that nagging voice that says, if people really knew you, if they knew what you were like on the inside, if they knew what you'd done, if they, whatever. Lord, I want to pray that your voice would speak louder than that voice. And Jesus, you bore our shame on the cross. You hung naked and cursed and abused and mocked. But we're clothed in you. I want to pray, Lord, you'd clothe us with Christ Jesus. You'd clothe us with the righteousness that comes from him. You'd give us again that sense that we are his people. We belong to him. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.